The book of Malachi really is about our loving father addressing his children who are throwing a temper tantrum of biblical proportions. Now, those of you who've had kids, you know what a temper tantrum looks like. A kid is on the floor screaming, they're kicking, they're saying very mean things. They just lost all control. They've lost sight of what reality actually is. And that's what Israel is doing, God's people is doing in the book of Malachi. God's people, Israel, have been in exile and captivity for years. For years and years, God's people have been subjugated, enslaved. But with the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC, the Jews, God's people, were allowed to come back home, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and the temple, so that they could resume their worship, giving sacrifices to God. And these are events that you can actually read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God's children, though, thought this would lead to abundance. Man, things are looking good. God has restored us back to our home. The temple is built. But reality quickly strayed from these expectations and hopes. Even though the temple stood, even though they were home, God's people were poor, politically weak, morally apathetic, and spiritually hollow. And so what do people do when things don't go their way? They can often throw a temper tantrum, a pity party. They get frustrated, they can lash out, and that's what Israel did. Throughout the book of Malachi, you're going to see a lot of their, their slogans, their sayings. They say things like, where is this God of justice? They say it's vain to serve God. They say things like, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them because we're suffering a lot. And so what we'll see over the next six weeks is God picking up his children, setting them on his lap, looking them in the eye, and addressing their issues one by one. But before he does that, he needs to communicate something very, very important to them. Turn to Malachi. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Malachi is the book right before Matthew. And so it's going to be uh, the last two-thirds of your Bible, probably somewhere in the middle, last two-thirds. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I, I encourage you to grab one of our blue Bibles back there. You're going to need God's Word in front of you as we go through this. You can get on your phones, and if you want to keep that Bible back there, that's a, a gift for you. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Malachi 1.1, the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start from the very beginning. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's a mouthful. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Oracle can be translated as burden. This is like a heavy message, an important message. That's the word of God by Malachi. Malachi literally means messenger. He is a conduit for God to speak, which is interesting. 85% of this book is actually God speaking. And so some of us say, man, God, I wish God would, would speak to me. I wish God would just tell me what he desires. Well, open the book of Malachi because you hear God's voice 85% of the time. And what is the first thing 
he says to his struggling children. Look at verse 2. I have loved you. I have loved you. Now we're going to talk a lot about the Father's love today. We're going to unpack the Father's love all throughout our message today. But I just want to start by saying this. When your child throws a temper tantrum, is your first response to say, you know, I love you. No. Man, I'm glad God is not like me. God gets down on a knee. He looks him in the eye and he connects before he corrects. He connects and says, I love you before he corrects them, which is a lot of the book of Malachi, which is, I think, a good pattern for us as parents is to when we see our kids flailing on the ground because you gave them the red cup and and not the blue cup when when they're just going nuts and and fighting is, is maybe not to start with with correction or aggression or frustration. But maybe we start with, hey, 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 I love you. Let's talk. That's how our father leads. I've loved you. And in the tense of this verb, as we read it in English, it seems like he used to love him. You know, I have loved you, but I no longer do. But that's not the tense in Greek. The tense in Greek is, I have loved you, and I continue to do so. I've loved you, and I still do. That's the, the, the tense that's being pulled out in the Greek. It's, it's this past love that has continued to the present day and will sustain them into the future. And this would have brought to mind for them, you know, I have loved you. This historical love would have brought to mind all of the ways that God has shown his love to them in the past. And I've loved you time and time again. I know you're griping. I know things aren't the way you want them to be right now. They're not perfect. Your expectations aren't being fulfilled. But I've loved you time and time again. I redeemed you from Egyptian bondage. I protected you from 10 plagues. I supernaturally parted the Red Sea. I gave you the law. I even freed you from captivity. That's a, that's a recent historical event for you. Look back. My love has been evident in your history over and over and over again. Is there an historical event? Now, I just want to ask this question. Is there a historical event that we can look back on as evidence of God's love for us. Yeah, it's the cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Their father's love was evident in their history. For us, the father's love is is also rooted in our history. The father's love was demonstrated fully for us, as we read this today, on the cross. The Father's love was demonstrated fully on the cross. How much, does, how much more does he have to convince you he loves you than by sending his son to pay the price so that you could be forgiven of your sins? And if you're in a situation where life is difficult, where you're in a bit of a tantrum, I pray that God helps you to see the cross clearly and fully, that you understand it. God's like, I loved you that much. That's a lot of love being poured out for your sake. I was willing to send my son to die for you. That's how much I've loved you. And as, as we'll see next, 
Israel's current situation blinded them from the historical evidence of God's love. And, and guess what? That happens to all of us. Correct? That happens to us on a regular basis. We just, our, our situations get so big, we get, we get blinded to the reality of, of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. God can handle that. God can deal with that. Look, look at how the Israelites respond. Look at the rest of verse 2. But you say, how have you loved us? So yeah, they know these things in their past, but look at their current situation. They're like, what, what have you done to, to love us? Again, they're throwing a bit of a tantrum here. Your kids will say the same thing, and you're like, man, I just, I just said, I've raised you, I've, I've fed you, I've been faithful to you, I've, I've clothed you, I, I just made you breakfast this morning, the breakfast you wanted to. What do you mean, do I love you? You don't love me. You ever had your kids say that? You don't love me. That's what Israel's doing right here. And, and the rest of this section is God responding to that claim, and he does it in a very interesting way. So look at verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And this is what God says. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. It's a very weird way for God to enter into this conversation. This is a rhetorical question. Now for us, we're like, what is God doing? But for Israel, back in the day, thousands of years ago, as God's speaking to them, they would have felt like Sunday school children answering this question. Yes, we know Israel and Jacob were, were twin brothers. And this is what God says. Yet I've loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau. And so God is reminding them of their family history and how he has been with them all throughout their family history. And to unpack this, because you may be like, well, I, I kind of know the story of, of Jacob and Esau. What is God trying to get at here? We got to go back to Genesis a little bit, and we got to talk about Abram and Abraham. So Abram became Abraham. God chose Abraham to, to fulfill his blessing, to, to be a blessing to the entire world. He, he comes down, and, and Abraham wasn't particularly a good guy. He was from a pagan nation. Scripture talks about his dad not being a very good guy. And God just says, I choose you. I choose to make a covenant, a relationship with you. And, and from you, there's going to be a great nation. Many people, and they'll be my people. And through those people, there'll be this seed, and that seed will be a blessing to the entire world. Now, we can look back and see that from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes who? Jesus Christ. To bless the entire world, to bring about salvation for those who would believe. And so God says, I choose you fulfill this promise. It's your family, man. Your family is going to become Israel and they're going to grow and become huge. And then Jesus is going to come and, and that family is going to get even bigger and bigger and, and bigger. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has twin boys named Jacob and Esau. One of which God is going to continue to fulfill that promise through. He's going to choose Jacob or he's going to choose Esau. And if if you've read in Genesis, you know that Jacob and Esau are very different and they didn't get along. They wrestled in the womb. 
dropping elbows, suplexes, headlocks, all sorts of things. When they were born, they were very different. Esau was, Esau was like a man's man. He was hairy. He was a, he was a daddy's boy, and he, he loved to hunt. And I think Esau, like he just said, you know, go out in the woods. He liked to spend time out in the open country, and he'd kill wild game, and he'd bring it back for his dad. And like, you liked that cooking. His dad loved the meat that he brought home. It was, oh, and, and, and Jacob, it says, all it says was, and Jacob hung out in a tent. I don't know. Drawing, I don't know, crafts. Like he hung out. They're just very different. So they're not identical twins. But they're identical in one way. They, they, they both were not good. They're not particularly good guys. Esau, the firstborn, had a birthright. Now this meant that he would inherit uh, the majority of, of his father's inheritance. It's a little redundant there, but you get what I mean. He's, he's going to receive the majority of his father's blessing. And Jacob tricks him into selling that for a bowl of soup. Hey, you want a bowl of soup? I'll get your inheritance. Yeah, I'll take that bowl of soup. It's like, it, 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 we kind of get lost. I guess it's kind of goofy, but this is, this is what, what, what that's saying. It's like, hey, Esau, how much do you value your family's legacy, your investment in its future, your heritage? And he'd say, about as much as a bowl of soup. Must have been a great bowl of soup. Or he wasn't a man of integrity and honor. Jacob literally means trickster. It literally means deceiver. He dressed up. He played Halloween. I'm going to be Esau for Halloween. He dressed up like his brother. And he actually stole his father's blessing. These are not good men. But God loves Jacob and hates Esau. This language is really hard to digest, right? God hates someone. What's he trying to communicate here? Part of that is our problem with the term hate. There's shades to hate. Sometimes we say, you know, I hate tacos, but do we really hate? I mean, come on. Like, like I hate this. And, and sometimes we're like, I really hate that guy. I really hate, and so some of it's that, and you know, we think of hate as like an emotional response and, uh, you know, seething in anger, wanting vengeance. Like, I'm sure you guys have experienced just hate in your heart for, for someone or something. I don't think that is what God is talking about here. And so most scholars see this and, and contextually see love and hate as referring to choice rather than affection and rejection rather than animosity. As one commentator said, love and hate should be understood in their covenantal sense as chosen and not chosen. So God chose to bless and work through Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. And you may say, well, that sounds nice, Larry, but where are you getting that from? Well, Jesus uses similar language in Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his mother and father, he cannot be my disciple. Now, do you think Jesus hated his mama? No. Jesus loved his, his mom. He's talking about the priority of, of preference or, or, or choice. 
Our God needs to be our, our first and highest priority, our preference, our first choice. And I think, I think he's saying something similar here. Although they were brothers, God sovereignly chose Jacob and not Esau. And so let's come back. We, we've told this whole story. We've talked about this. We've talked about, you know, I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. What is God then trying to communicate to his people? While God is talking about two individuals here, Jacob and Esau, He's really addressing the nations they represent. Jacob represents who? Israel, correct? And Esau represents a country called Edom, which we'll talk about here, a people group called Edom. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, I chose Jacob. He's telling his people, you know, you question my love, and I've loved you throughout history, you still question my love. Are you not my chosen people? Did I not choose you? I could have easily have chosen Esau and nobody would have batted an eye. I could have easily chosen somebody else, but, but I chose you. I chose to have a covenant relationship with you. I was not forced, coerced, or under any obligation to love you. But I did that. And I loved you before you even thought of loving me. So that's what God was communicating to them then. What is God trying to communicate to us now, today? And I know there's some of you asking this question. Does God love and choose us in the same way he did with Jacob and Esau back then? Like, does God look at you know, Doug and say, God, I love you. I'm going to have a relationship with you. I'm going to come after you. And, and Aaron, sorry, I'm gonna, I, I, I don't like you. I, I'm, I'm going to pass on, and, 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 I, and I'm not going to do that. And this is a very actually deep theological argument that's been waging for, for centuries, for hundreds of years. Do we choose God, or does he choose us? And this question it's argued by seminary nerds everywhere ever since seminary nerds were a thing. Have you guys ever known a seminary nerd before? Oh, I, I was one of those. I tried to steer away from this argument uh, because I don't want to get lost in the weeds for all the, the diehard Calvinists and, and ardent Arminians here. Here's what I'll say. And if you don't know what those terms even are, you're okay. That's fine. You're not missing. You're like Calvinist. Well, what is he talking about? armoires and, and, and cows and calves. Like, what, what, like, if you don't know what those are, you're, you're, you're fine. Uh, but, it, but I know there's some of you who are like, well, what's he going to say here? I don't want to get lost in the weeds talking about those two, two different things. I mean, I think it takes both. I think we need to choose God, and, and I do think God comes after us and, and, and in a way chooses us. But the big question is, is who initiates that relationship? Who initiates that relationship? And, and here's what I'll say. And you can take this to the bank. Any belief system that downplays God's initiatory action in saving us is one to question. I'm going to say that again. Any belief system that downplays God's initiatory action in saving us is one to question. I... I, I tend to lean towards one way. My friends on the other side would agree with that statement. Scripture says that we were once wayward in sin, 
unable to save ourselves, alienated from God, dead in our trespasses and sin, blinded, morally bankrupt, defiled, and unable to save ourselves. And if it were not for God's movement towards us, his grace, forgiveness, and love, no one would be saved. We would all be doomed. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Separation from God forever. One pastor likened it to the process of adoption. It's not legally possible for a child to fill out some paperwork and adopt a parent. Instead, a parent must decide to adopt the child, and then the child is given a voice as to whether or not they wanted to be adopted in, into a family. And Christianity, this, this writer and, and I, both, both don't see how we adopt God as our father. I think the father chooses to come after us. And he sends his spirit and he changes our hearts. And from that new heart, we love and choose the father who has chosen us in love. So if you nerds want me to go deeper, I will not in this context. And I will not with this passage because we got to move on. Which brings me to another point about the father's love. We see the father's love is an initiating love. The father's love is also unconditional. God doesn't choose Jacob and Israel because they're good people. It's the father who is loving and good. And you may ask, well, why didn't God choose someone who's good? Why didn't God choose someone who's good to work through? Because nobody's good. Because we don't measure up. And and guys, I'm not saying we're as bad as we could be, but sin has touched every part of us our emotion, our will, our actions, our desires. We have fallen short. If, if, if life were, were a Marvel movie, none of us would be Avengers. We'd all be the bad guy. <laughs> you don't hear that a lot in churches. But we do. We're, we're all the villain. And so the fact that God would adopt any of us is a sign of his grace. He doesn't walk into the orphanage and say, who deserves to be adopted today? No, he says, I want the straggly one, the crazy one right there. I want some of the worst ones. You know why? Because that's going to be evidence of of my love. And I'm going to display my glory through the crazy ones, through the ones who aren't perfect. The ones who aren't good. Those are the ones I really want to go after. So God's love is is unconditional, which is a really freeing reality to to live under if you think about it. I don't have to try to persuade God to love me more in Christ. I think there's a lot of you out there who daily try to persuade God to love you more. His love is unconditional. He's going to love you tomorrow no matter what you do which is another freeing truth to live under. There's nothing I can do to make him love me any less. That's crazy. What if we really lived under the weight of those truths instead of the lies we we tell ourselves? There's nothing I can do to make him love me any less. 
I don't need to persuade him to love me anymore because his love is initiating. His love is unconditional. I've loved you. I've chosen you. And he goes on here to substantiate his love for Israel, his people. Look at verse three. But I I have hated, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, and Edom is the descendants of Esau, if they say, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What is God communicating to his people now (laughs) about his love? Well, when God's people sin, when Israel sin, when we sin, because we are God's people, there's discipline, there's correction, which is why God's people have continually been knocked down throughout the Old Testament. It was to teach them, to draw them back. But there's always a promise for restoration because God loves them, which even these people had seen. They'd been brought back from their captivity. They'd been restored back to Jerusalem in their temple. Edom's fate, the descendants of Esau, their fate is different. God rejects Edom because they fall into wickedness. They become a pagan nation. Their their pride, treachery, greed, and violence are, are noted in the Bible. They actually helped Babylon conquer and plunder Jerusalem. Turned on their brother, their brother country. They've warred with Israel over the years and even up to the point of Jesus. Herod the Great, who sought to kill young Jesus, was from this line of people. And and so God judges them. By the time of Malachi, Nabadian Arabs had conquered Edom. They'd driven its people out. Their cities had become ghost towns populated by desert creatures. God's like, look at, look at them. Jackals, desert creatures who feed off scraps. They, they walk around their city. Because guess what? There's, there's nothing there anymore. God is pointing to their current situation and saying, you, on the other hand, have been treated with grace, brought back despite your rebellion and sin because you are mine while Edom lies in ruin because of their wickedness. Which brings me to my last observation about the love of our father. The father's love is faithful. Even though we mess up, even though we constantly turn from him, he will not abandon us. You may be disciplined, corrected, but there will never be condemnation for you in Christ because some of you, uh, because you are his. And some of you need to hear that today. Despite your sin, you listen to me, God is not done with you. Despite your sin, God is not done with you. He will not leave you. He will be faithful to his family, to his children forever. 
So let's sum this all up. These children are throwing a temper tantrum. They're frustrated because of their lot. Things aren't panning out. And the first thing that God tells his people, I'm your father and I've loved you. I've loved you. That love initiated a a relationship with you. That love with you is unconditional. And that love for you is faithful. And it will sustain you. When life is unfair, when things aren't going right for you, or maybe the way you would expect them to go, fix your eyes on the cross. Humble yourselves and thank him for the gift of salvation. I thank you for coming after me. Rejoice in the fact that his love for you yesterday, today, tomorrow is unconditional. Should you continue to sin? No. Our response should be to love him. And we display that love through, through obedience. And rest in the fact that even when you stumble, he will be faithful to you. And I want to end by saying this. If we truly believe that the Father loved us in this way, if this is how the Father sees us and and looks at us and, and feels about us as his children, would we not demonstrate that love to the world? Kids often act like their parents. So if a kid's a jerk, more than likely their parent is probably a jerk. Uh, I mean, more than likely, their parents are probably rough and, and a bully. Like if a kid's a bully, generally they're, they're getting that from somewhere. And so if, if we're getting love, <laughs> if we're receiving the Father's love, would we then as his children not demonstrate that love to the world? Would we not point people to the historical reality of the cross? Will we not root that love in in an event? Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins so that you could be with him, so that you could be in his family. Would we not be initiators of love? So often we withhold love because somebody is difficult or, or challenging. Would we not go to people in love before they become before they become lovable? Sometimes we wait for people that that guy's a cool guy. I'm going to show him love. Would we not be initiators of love? Unconditional initiators of love. Would we not display unconditional love? Would we not love people who are hard to love? And and some of you are hard to love. I'm hard to love. We can all be hard to love on any given day. Would we not love people unconditionally? And would we not love people faithfully? We're so quick to abandon others who are challenging, who take up time, who are difficult. But if our God is faithful to us, wouldn't we be lovingly faithful to others and endure, persevere? Would we not display the love that has been showered on us, the love of the Father, spoken through the prophet of Malachi thousands of years ago? Let's pray.